For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is Good Heavens, a podcast exploring the wonders of God's heavenly creation. In the early part of the 20th century, the greatest minds in the physical sciences, Sir Arthur Eddington, Sir James Jeans, Albert Einstein, Max Planck, and Lord Rutherford, just to name a few, discussed whether or not the atoms that make up all of nature and the physical universe as a whole behaved in an indeterminate manner. That is, were the atoms that comprised every created thing we know of behaving randomly and without any kind of determined purpose, or were the course of atoms determined either by God or some unknown physical force or law? Eddington and Jeans believed atoms moved about rather indeterminately, while Einstein, Planck, and Rutherford thought the motion of atoms were determined. But as the Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple, who was a contemporary of these brilliant physical scientists, noted in a series of Gifford lectures in the 1930s that, for the Christian, there is no such thing as indeterminacy in nature. For God, quote, is the all-comprehending mind. The course which he sustains in nature is orderly. That it should be in any way capricious would imply such characteristics in God as are manifest defects or limitations when they appear in men. In other words, despite appearances to the contrary, from the beginning, God remains sovereignly and majestically in control of nature through the numbered hairs of our heads, to the death of sparrows, the direction of the wind, the boundaries of the seas, and all the stars in their luminously uniform regularity, even our suffering and sorrow, God is sovereign over all. As Temple notes, all of creation reflects God, quote, guiding the movement of electrons and galaxies, end quote, which is ultimately, quote, the expression of the truly personal being whose self is manifested in successive and partial disclosures. God in the world acts now this way and now that as he carries to accomplishment his unchanging purpose, end quote. The universe, Temple observes, quote, only exists by his fiat. The more we study the activity of God imminent in creation, the more we become aware of God transcendent beyond creation, end quote. In short summary, Temple believed that by paying close attention to God's sovereign and active guidance and rule over and through creation, we as Christians become more aware of God's transcendence above and beyond creation. As Romans 1 says, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen through what he has made.
But at times, whether we are scientists scrutinizing the atom or Christians struggling with suffering, sorrows, or doubt, nature, even God himself, might appear to us as harsh, uncaring, indifferent to our plight. The English poet Alfred Lloyd Tennyson wrestled with doubt and unbelief. Priest, poet, and scholar Malcolm Geit writes that, quote, Though he was born in a vicarage, or perhaps because he was born in a vicarage, Tennyson had great struggles with faith. Like many young students before or since, he had all but abandoned his faith by the time he came up to the university." End quote. Tennyson's struggle is relevant for all of us, as we too live in an age dominated by an optimistic scientism, and many of us wrestle with what we see as an irreconcilable conflict between modern science and religious belief. Young Tennyson, quote, "...freely explored the new science, the optimism of the 19th century, and the fresh horizons opening up on every side, end quote, that Guite notes. But then tragedy struck. Tennyson's best friend Arthur Hallam suddenly died. Shocked and grieving, quote, Tennyson began to fear that what the new science revealed was not a caring God or a purposeful world, but a nature whose processes were grim and mindless, a cosmos indifferent to suffering, end quote, Guite says. The phrase, nature red in tooth and claw, comes from Tennyson's poem in Memoriam, which he wrote as a tribute to his late friend. Geith says that it was, quote, even before Darwin had published his theories, end quote, that, quote, Tennyson looked to the fossil record and heard from nature only the voice of indifference. From scarped cliff and quarried stone, she cries, a thousand types are gone, I care for nothing. All shall go. End quote. Our world is indeed marred by sin as well as a host of moral and natural evils. It is quite common to wonder where God is in the midst of it all. How then should we consider our suffering? The longest discourse of God speaking in the Bible is his response to his beleaguered servant Job, who underwent a series of diabolical calamities, including the loss of his children and his friends constantly accusing him that it was his sin that brought about such suffering. God's answer to Job's plight was an extended commentary on God's sovereignty in creation. It did not directly address human suffering. Instead, the conclusion of the whole matter was essentially the glory of God. Though Job did not have his questions answered as he hoped, the response from the Lord nevertheless humbled him and led him to repentance. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I discuss the book of Job, creation and God's lordship over everything, including the often sad and tragic things that happen to us. And I confess that it is much easier to analyze suffering and creation when one's circumstances are running relatively smoothly, but it is far more difficult for me to talk about suffering when I experience it personally. But I can relate to the psalmist in Psalm 77 who declares, quote, It is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. End quote. 
There is a curious paradox in this line to consider. For on the one hand, because of various trials, the psalmist was sorrowful because he thought that God had changed, that God was no longer going to be gracious or compassionate toward him. But you can also read the psalmist's confession as though he were saying, God has changed my grief from mourning to rejoicing. Often our griefs are because we have the wrong thoughts about God, as Job's friend did, wrong thoughts that caused Job endless grief. But God is gracious and compassionate, often beyond what we can imagine. And by his mercy to us, through the Lord Jesus Christ, he transforms our griefs into joy. Sorrow may endure for a night, as the scriptures say, but joy comes in the morning. Wayne and I certainly do not have all the answers, and I again admit that when I actually go through trials of various kinds, I'm not exactly as chipper and hopeful as I sound <laughs> behind the microphone. But both of us have been encouraged by the book of Job and by meditating on God's glory in creation through our trials and tribulations. We hope this special episode will help you along in your journey, whatever you may be going through. As we begin, just a side note here, I mention in our discussion John chapter 9, where you will hear me say that, so the glory of God may be displayed in the man born blind. But scripture actually says, so that the works of God may be displayed. But I chose to leave it as I consider that the works of God, in this case Jesus restoring the man's sight, as pointing to the glory of God, just as the stars, the works of God's fingers, as David says in Psalm 8, declare the glory of God. Well, good heavens, Wayne. It's been quite an adventure this past few weeks, uh, as many of our listeners may know. But good heavens, it's good to be here on Good Heavens. Uh, how are you? I'm good, and it's good to... Uh Give it another whirl. Yes, we're giving it another whirl as the uh, as the world turns. That was an old soap opera when I was growing up. You remember that soap opera, As the World Turns? Uh, I probably didn't watch it much. Okay. Uh, well, anyway, the world is turning as we are speaking. The world is whirling around. Stars spin. Our yeah, sun I rotates. Was busy. I was busy for a while, and you were on the road for a while. But Yeah, I was on the road. and uh, Back got hit by a uh, an uninsured uh uh rather large uninsured slab of venison in Colorado. <laughs> I expected uh, the rest of the rain Santa's reindeer to come out from behind the bushes with this guy but uh, I was driving home from Colorado as you know uh coming back from my mission trip in Utah. It was 5 a.m. on a dark two-lane Colorado country road and an enormous uh, mule deer with uh, lots of antlers and lots of mass, uh, jumped out from behind the bushes, and uh, my car hit him in midair. And, uh, well, God took away that car. <laughs> there was <laughs> not a whole lot of the front end left of that automobile, um, but it was a, a very frightful experience. Thankfully, I was only a few miles from my friend's house. So I got an extended stay in Colorado a couple of weeks ago, which you can't complain about that. Very beautiful part of the state. Um and uh, God is good. He, I was safe. Everything worked out. But uh, when it happened, I thought of what Job said in the opening 
chapter after he loses everything. Of course, I didn't lose everything, but you know, you lose your vehicle. That's a big loss. And uh, I said, uh, every, I was. It's like instantly it came to mind as I'm sitting there, look at my the steam coming out of the uh, smashed radiator. <laughs> it's like you know, the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, which is what Job says. Yes, um, in his difficulties. And uh, so, how funny. Well, it's not funny. I don't know what the right word is. Ironic, interesting, that um, before I went to Utah, Wayne, we were going to do a show. We planned to do a show. Yeah, we were talking about Job because we were both reading a book called The Remarkable Record of Job by Henry M. Morris. Yeah. And, and uh, I'm really glad that we kind of both read it at about the same time because I got a lot yeah, out of it. Yeah, I, um, I just thought it was perfectly fitting that uh, God would uh, do something in miniature like that. I mean, it wasn't uh, nearly uh, as bad as uh, as Job was, but, uh, you know, God took away all Job's camels, you know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, God restored Job's camels. I think he got a lot more, a lot yeah, more camels. Yeah, not to mention his children. He had 10 children. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it's not just about getting stuff back, but but you know that God was was merciful um, despite what uh, what happened to Job, so I'm not saying that my yeah. trial with a deer was anything of the same magnitude as uh, as Job's losses were. Um, I was fine; I didn't get hurt or anything, and I felt bad for the deer. It was a majestic animal; I'd never seen a deer that big. Um, but uh, but it was a, a lesson in miniature, Wayne. About um, just a reminder. You know, I was in a hurry to get back to Texas, going to get back to work, getting get back into the swing of things, and God just kind of reminded me, I'm in charge. <laughs> That's you're right. on my you're on my schedule, Dan. <laughs> That's right. And if I th- if I think I if if I think you need a timeout, I'm going to give you a timeout. And uh, so I had a, a week timeout in uh, the beautiful uh, southern foothills of the Colorado Rockies. It, I'm like the most the most awesomest, beautiful place I could uh, I've been in a long time. Uh, staying at uh, my friend's ranch, and gosh, it was beautiful. So I can't really no no real means to complain because uh speaking of loss my friend's church the people that i stayed with in colorado uh i went to their wednesday night prayer service while i was there and uh that church very small church in durango they lost a uh a church member a member um who was uh he was in his late 20s he was a an ultra marathon runner and he went running in um uh part of the rockies uh on a saturday and didn't come back and um, young guy, single. They found his car. Uh, they searched the trail that he they knew he ran, but he's been missing for three weeks. And it's no longer searching for him to be alive. It's now kind of turned into a, a search instead of a rescue. Uh, his name is David, and uh, he was very loved. And, you know, it, it just puts things into perspective. Um, you know, my deer hitting the car, so what? You know? Well, that's really um, sad. Yeah, I mean, it's I, I say that to say that you know, no matter what we're going through, everybody's experiencing or has experienced uh, loss. You know, whether it's material things or the loss of a loved one. I lost my dad when I was in high school. Um, you know, so we we go through these things, and um, you know, sometimes we wonder why. And Wayne, we've talked about this off mic, but uh, you know, it's fascinating. I think we both agreed with what Dr. Morris had said. It was something always in the back of my mind, but here another person was saying it. I've never read this book by Dr. Morris, but, um, you know, he, he argues, and I agree with him, I think you do too, that, um, 
the book of Job doesn't, well, at least God's answer to Job's suffering and trials is, uh, has nothing, God never mentions what happened in the front end of the book of Job. God never brings up Job's suffering. God never talks about the devil or why Job had to suffer. Uh, we don't get that. It's not a. If it is a book about suffering, yes. God's an, God's answer is, "Do you know how I have created things, Job? Do you know that?" And so it's a. It's a. The if it is about suffering, God's answer is a meditation on His Majesty and sovereignty in creation. That seems to be what. Yes. Uh, and he doesn't deal with the, the questions like, "Why do we suffer?" We don't get that answer. Why did Job have to go through what he did? We don't get that answer. Um, at least not there. Um, so it's it's. Uh, I think, and I I, I know you too. Uh, I found tremendous comfort myself when I go through difficulties in stargazing and just looking at the stars, looking at the heavens. That's why we do this podcast. That's why we wrote the book. It's it's a very uh, how should I say? Not just calming. It just doesn't make you feel good. It's a very uh, contemplative, meditative, worshipful experience to think of. God's creation when you are struggling with something. Um, you know, it, it really seems to be, uh, it doesn't answer all of our questions, but it does seem to be what yes. God encourages us to do. Yes, and I think when we do that, when we consider his creation, it it reminds us of things about God. Right. And it's really getting our focus on God and that really helps with... Um, dealing with a lot of unexpected difficult things in life it seems it doesn't doesn't seem like it would be an answer but it is kind of because it changes your perspective yeah and you you consider god god is in control and he still cares it's just that there's some difficult things that come along along the way so the difficult things i think help us to see uh, kind of the the bigger picture of what he's all about. He's not. Right. He's not. Um, it's not like a formula. Like you follow of the formula and everything clicks and it goes smooth and nice in life. And uh, it's not that God is good only when things are going easy. Right. He's right. good all the time, and he has yeah. a purpose for. Everything that happens. Well, it's interesting you say that too, because I, and I'm going to refer to the car accident with the deer a couple of times in this, just because I've I've learned things through there. Not only did I have a week to think about it, but you know, I something worse could have happened. You know, um, and I was forced to contemplate. Not forced. I mean, I really okay, Lord, what does this all mean? You know, and uh, you get. Answers, I went through scripture and I recorded in my journals um, what I thought God might be saying. And it was just rest and trust and rest and trust. But one thing that struck me about this whole situation, and it's something that uh, Dr. Morris brings up in this commentary. It's a very short book, by the way, guys. It's on Master Books. It's a very small paperback book. It's not weighty, dense, or scholarly. It's, it's very accessible. Uh, the Remarkable Record of Job, Henry M. Morris. Um, what was fascinating to me, Wayne, is that I got... Uh, uh, insurance pictures from the insurance company about uh, from my car and the front end was all smashed and one picture was really interesting to me 
and I thought this was, and as, as soon as I saw it, I knew, kind of knew what God was was doing. That uh, the the front end of the car, the whole hood, was smashed in like tinfoil. It just like crump crumpled. But this one particular picture of the insurance from the insurance, the actual point of impact on the hood was re- was taken. It was taken in the morning, and this one point of impact on the hood was just radiating and reflecting sunlight from the early morning sunrise and there was rays of light coming off of this accident point of impact with the deer and as soon as i saw it i thought of uh god and jacob where in genesis i think it's genesis 32 where god touches jacob's hip he lets jacob live i mean he could have killed jacob but he lets him live, and he touches his hip, and Jacob limps. And when I saw that patch of sunlight sitting on the damaged <laughs> front end of the car, I was like, oh, "God!" It was God saying, "I I did that. I touched your car. I'm in charge of the animals. I'm in charge of the deer. I'm in charge of everything. This is my doing, Daniel." And and he was very gentle, you know, for all of what could have happened, it was very gentle. I mean, the airbags didn't go off. I wasn't hurt. I didn't go forward. But God's little gentle touch on that car, he took the car away from me. I don't know what was going to happen down the road. Who knows what God was sparing me from. But it was his touch on that front end. It wasn't the deer, ultimately. It was ultimately God's timeout for me. It was very comforting because though the car was damaged to the point beyond being repaired... I saw that spot of light as God's fingerprint because, as you know, the Bible says God is light. And as Dr. Morris said in the book, that light is the foundation of our universe. Uh, You know, every energy is basically a form of light. And so I thought about that and I thought, you know, God is is light. Uh, Psalm 139 says that, uh, that even the light and the darkness are alike to him. And he asks Job, do you know the dwelling place? Do you know where light is going? Do you know where light comes from? Yes. And and it's it's a wonderful thing, but it was very comforting because, you know, when I was like, what happened? Why did this happen? And then God just says, shh, this is from me. You know, trust me, and, and you just need to rest. <laughs> you just need yes, a time and, out. <laughs> you know, and there's another side of it, too, is that God goes through all these things and talks about the things that Job has no idea Um uh, what goes on in in nature and God not only does God know it all, all all about it, He is in control of it. So you might you might think, right. well, since since the time of Job, we've learned a lot from our science and everything, but really uh, we kind of learned around the edges of things. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> but, right, but right. It's not, and even even if we do know a lot about some things. Um, we don't control nature. No. And as much as we think we know about nature, we build things that uh, redirect water and capture the wind and maybe capture some solar energy and we can fly airplanes in the sky. But, uh, Wayne, we, we can't control nature. We just can't. I mean, the whole lesson of the last few chapters of Job is, uh, do you know where this is? Do you know how this is done? Do you know the laws or the ordinances of the heavens, which is one of my favorite verses? Of course, Job can't, Job can't answer any of these questions. Um, and and so it's all about the majesty of Christ. And uh, just a couple of days ago, you remember we were talking about this, and uh, I thought 
that the New Testament actually gives us a nice, it's actually Jesus himself, gives us a nice summary, I think, of the book of Job. And we'll start here and then we'll get into the book and all. It's John chapter 9. And the disciples are with Jesus and they see a man who was blind from birth. And they ask Jesus, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he may be born blind? And so right there I thought, well, that's just like Job's friends, right? Job's friends think Job must have sinned. You don't get all this calamity on you unless you've done something really bad, Job. Come on, fess up, man. And Job maintains his integrity. Job didn't sin. And we know from the beginning of the book that Job didn't sin. But his friends keep pressing him. This doesn't happen to people who don't sin. And the idea is, if I don't sin, then good things will happen to me. And if I do sin, bad things will happen to me. And that's legalism. That's how cults behave. That's not the way God is, though. And so what does Jesus say, Wayne, to the, to the disciples' questions in John chapter 9? Who well, sinned, this says, man or his parents? Neither him nor his parents sinned. Why was he born blind then? Jesus actually tells us, so that the glory of God may be displayed in him. Yes, about the glory of God. And I thought, well, this is a microcosm of the book of Job. Here is our human opinions. Well, somebody must have sinned. And Jesus comes back and said, no, no. And he doesn't, he doesn't upbraid the disciples for their question. He just says, this man was born blind so that the glory of God may be displayed in him. And then what does Jesus do? He heals him, and he can see. Let there, let there be light. Let light shine out of darkness. He gives him and restores him not only his physical sight, but gives him new birth and spiritual insight as well, spiritual sight. But I thought that's what the book of Job is. Did Job sin? No, Job didn't sin. This befell Job so that the glory of God may be displayed through him. And remember at the end, when Job is repentant, he said, my ears have heard of you, but now what? My eyes, and my eyes have, have seen, seen you. you. There you go. And, and that's what happened with the man born blind. His eyes were opened, not only physically, he could see, physically see Jesus, but he could also see Jesus as Lord, which is the kind of eyesight that we need for salvation, and that only Jesus can give. And uh, so I thought that was a nice microcosm of the book of Job. I've never heard any commentator say that. I don't mean to be novel about it, but I just thought, well, that's, that seems to be, um, it could possibly be a good explanation for, for the book of Job. But um, anyway, Wayne, you have a nice outline, and I don't want to deviate too much from it. Um, let's, uh, let's jump into this book before, and then we can talk a little bit about uh, some of Dr. Morris's insights. I mean... And, yeah. and from the outset, you and I both, I mean, there's a lot of good that Dr. Moore says, but you don't have to agree with everything in this book. And certainly I know we had some some things that we may not see eye to eye on, but I think for the most part, uh, very insightful and uh, a lot, very refreshing, very accessible and very biblical, I thought, in, in many ways. Yeah. So the, the book is called The More Remarkable Record of Job. It was originally published in 1988. And this is a, I've read a number of Henry Morris's books, and but I didn't have this one until recently, and uh, I decided to read it uh, as I was studying the, the book of Job. So, um, 
the book of Job is interesting. Um, it, Morris makes some good points about some kind of historical connections with some things in the book of Genesis in the Bible because of uh, some things about Job's friends, some things about places and peoples that are people groups and, and places that are mentioned um, in the book. You can uh, you can infer some things about when it must have come from. Now, we don't know anything much about who Job was. You know, like we don't know his father and or things like that. But it says he lived in the land of Uz. Uh, well, you say Uz, I say Ooze or Ooze, whatever. <laughs> I'm going to say Uz, but. Oz is probably bright. I we think know about good. where that is, okay? In the Bible, yeah. there's some things that tells us that uh, the land of Uz was originally where a certain man lived. There was an actual man named Uz, and he had a brother named Buzz. <laughs> Uz and Buzz were brothers. And guess guess who Uz and Buzz were? They were the nephews of Abraham. Oh, so they were we have... Uh... Yeah, they were nephews of Abraham, and okay. so uh, Job lived in a general area that was there was a lot of descendants of Abraham. Okay, and even so, this is this is this is uh, we're talking about the events that are described in the Book of Job are probably the oldest are are somewhere around the time of Abraham or after, right? Kind yeah, that's what you're thinking. Yes. Um, Post Abraham, and probably not long after the flood, um, because Dr. Morris points out there's a multitude of, and I didn't really catch this before, but but when God is speaking of creation at the end of the book, there's a multitude of references to water, snow, frost, and ice that uh, yes. could have been could have been indicative of the ice sheets that covered the planet uh, after the flood for a couple, I don't know, decades, centuries, whatever. Yeah. Um, that uh, that this would, the flood and the ice um, may have been fresh in the minds of Job and his friends. Fascinating. Yes, I think so. And um, creationists believe there was one ice age after Noah's flood and that would have lasted uh, several hundred years. Uh, so that's, that would have been around this time. I mean, it didn't cover the whole world, but in the Ice Age, in the northern climates, there was a glaciers. And in other, mm. pl- other places where there was not ice, there would have been a lot more uh, rain yeah. and a different yeah. climate. So, now Job had yeah. uh, Job had uh, long life. You have in your outline here. You say that uh, um, uh, he lived 140 years after his suffering, and so he may have lived upwards of 170 to 200 years after. Yeah, you think about this. How, how long does it take for to father uh, ten children who grow up to be adults? Mm-hmm. And that all happened before Job's suffering. Mm-hmm. And then there was the suffering, and we're not sure how long that was. But then afterwards, he was he lived another 140 years and had another 10 children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he had quite the robust life, um, but, and was and Dan, very. This, 
this agrees very nicely with some of the information in Genesis because uh, in Genesis 11, you have the genealogies of the people after Noah. You remember for the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Mm-hmm. It kind of leads up to the Tower of Babel story. But the uh, in that list of genealogies, it gives the time of their lifespan if you put the numbers together. And so uh, this life, lifespan of Job from, from the book of Job agrees mm-hmm. with about the t- lifespan of some of those men listed in the Genesis genealogy. Yeah, yeah. And um, Job was um, uh, something like Abraham. Abraham was quite uh, wealthy in terms of possessions when God called him out of the land of the Chaldeans, Ur of the Chaldeans. And then Job had... Uh, it, it was well known. He was, according to his own testimony towards the, the latter part of the book, um, he was a, a ruler, a chief, um, one who led young men, who counseled people at the gates of the city, who was uh, wealthy and had many possessions, a large family, and a uh, very well-known guy, you know. And um, it it's fascinating that uh, in the beginning we see that one of we see a little bit of gospel right in the beginning of Job because what is it? God declares to Satan, "Have you considered my servant Job, who is blameless?" And that's fascinating to me because how 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 are we made right with with God? Well, the Bible says that we're made right with God through Christ. And if you read Ephesians one, Ephesians one says we're saved because we were in Christ before the foundation of the world, and so. Job, or Abraham, or Moses, or anybody that lived uh, before the New Testament times uh, were saved because they were in Christ before the foundation of creation. And I think uh, that God calls Job blameless, not because Job's behavior was perfect, but because Jesus' sacrifice and obedience was. And so God can declare, it's like Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How was Noah justified? What did he do? I mean, he got drunk after the flood. I mean, can you forgive him for that? You know, but it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't Noah's perfect obedience. It wasn't Abraham's perfect obedience. It wasn't Job's perfect obedience. What was it? It was the obedience of Christ that made these men righteous. I, and I find solace in that. Um, yeah, and, and and Job obviously believed in God and. There are places in the book of Job where he, he he acknowledges he's not sinless. He doesn't claim to be sinless, right? But he he has this very strong conviction that he didn't do anything that somehow made him deserve this suffering, right? That it was it was mysterious why this was happening, and he he's he even talks about God wronging him. Yeah. And um, I think over time, you might be able to say he got kind of impatient, but he didn't give up his faith in God because of it. Right. He was. He stayed true to his convictions. Right. And right. he had these friends, and um, his friends kept kind of coming back to the idea that Jesus was addressing in in the gospel passage you you brought up that people have this assumption that when when someone dies there's something 
maybe there was a something they did to deserve that, or there was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the the good things happen to those who do good, and bad things happen to those who don't. And there is a truth to that, but it's not an all the time thing. And everybody faces some of the same problems in life, right? Um, well, and that's too the the uh, the fascinating thing about that, Wayne, is uh, you know we hear of Satan in the first couple of chapters of Job, but then he disappears. But the, like Doctor Morris said, though, he alludes to the fact that well, Satan didn't exactly disappear. Uh, he reappears in the speech of Job's wife. What does Job's wife say to him? Does Job still hold fast to his integrity? <laughs> Curse God and die. Curse God and die. It's like, you foolish woman. You do not, you know, I mean, but there, there, there is uh, that lady, Job's wife, the mouthpiece for the, for the adversary, just like Peter, right? In Matthew 16, where, where Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter says, Lord, forbid it that this should happen to you when Jesus was speaking of his his coming suffering. And and Jesus turned around and rebuked him and said, get thee behind me, not Peter, but Satan. Satan you are not right. mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. And and, and and I think too, though though we can't see it directly in the text, that Job's friends are mouthpieces for the adversary. Satan doesn't let up in this. I think he is speaking indirectly or directly or influencing Job's friends in in throughout the speech where where yes. God God has to correct Job's friends. You know, God has to to say Job will pray for you. <laughs> Job will intercede for yes, you. Yes, in right? fact, uh, I'm I'm not sure if I, I don't have the verses to lined up to show this right now, but Morris argues that there are places in the book of Job where he you can infer from what his friends say and even what Job says that he thinks that Satan may have been somehow uh, influencing them from dreams or while they were sleeping somehow. Hmm. Interesting. But there's a, there's a, another, um, we're jumping around here, but we'll get back to what we're talking about. Um, where, uh, God comes to Job about speaking about Job's friends. Uh, this is uh, chapter 42, verse 17. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Elphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, I think we have tinctures of Jesus. Go to my servant. You know, the Bible calls Jesus the servant in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Go to my servant, my son, Jesus. And my son, Jesus, will pray for you. He will intercede for you. I will accept him. And God accepts his son, and God accepts us through his son, because none of us have spoken right about God. (laughs) And God does not treat us according to our folly. 
because of what Jesus has done. So I think there are tinctures of, of and, and I, I've argued this and I can't prove it, but I would say the remarkable thing about Job is that in, in Job, it is Job suffering and God kind of overseeing everything. But in Christ, Jesus takes Job's place, essentially, and Jesus suffers unjustly for us. Um, well, you, so have, you have uh, Job having a kind of priestly behavior yes. in a couple of ways. In the beginning of it, you read about Job uh, sacrificing a burnt offering for his children in case they had sinned. And then at the end of the book, even after all that Job had gone through in the suffering, he, um, the Lord says, Job spoke what was right, not his friends, and right. he and he he has, he has Job pray for them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, there's uh, the idea of the righteous one is the one who has the right to ask God, you know, for right, right, and that's that's Jesus' role as an. An intercessor to to forgive us, right? Yeah. Right. Um, I I now this is another. This has to do with the stars. So I just I want to jump right into here with this be, before I forget, and then we can go on to uh, to other things. But uh, one of the first things that God mentions to Job after Job uh, after God appears to him in the whirlwind, he starts with the heavens and the earth. He starts with where were you when I laid the foundations? Yes. Of the earth? Uh, when all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. What an amazing passage. And then later on, same chapter, God says, uh, do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you lead a constellation? Or the Hebrew is Maseroth. Most people think that's constellation, but we're not entirely sure. Uh, Henry Morris translated it as constellation. But can you lead forth a constellation or the Maseroth in its seasons? And a few of the things that God mentions by name are Orion and Taurus, or Orion and the Pleiades and the Great Bear. And the Great Bear is Ursa Major, um, which is uh, the Big Dipper is a part of Ursa Major. Right. And um, and it's we've talked about this before on other podcasts where uh, there's a um, uh, the idea throughout all cultures, all different cultures that had little contact with each other, uh, all have this idea of a bear in the northern part of the planet, um, which is kind of remarkable. But um, our star names, I want to just talk about why, how I think this touches on Job. I could be totally wrong and just making something up. This is Daniel Ray's interpretation, but it's fascinating to me because Job mentions them. So the great bear is mentioned in the book of Job. Can you guide the bear and her cubs? Probably talking about Ursa Major. If not... It may just be talking about bears, uh, either way. But let's say it's talking about Ursa Major. Um, now, I know most of our listeners probably don't know all the star names in the Big Dipper, but I will t- I will uh, bring up the one star at the end of the Big Dipper. It's the third handle star on the end of the Dipper, and it's referred to as Al-Qaeda. It's in Arabic. Al-Qaeda means chief. Now, that star name also has another name. Its longer name is Al-Qaeda Benat al-Na'ash. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but that's Arabic for chief of the daughters of the beer, B-E-I-R. And what that means is that's the chief 
funeral director. Uh, we would we would call him the director of the funeral house. He's the leader of those who are mourning, who are in mourning, who are expressing sorrow at the loss of someone. Now, what's interesting is that all the other stars in the Dipper have something to do with animal, with bear. The waist, the loins, uh, you name it. It's kind of strange, and I've always thought so. That You don't really, if you go into the astronomy stories about why the star names are the way they are, you don't really get an explanation as to how a star gets named the chief mourner in a star constellation, asterism, that's all about bears and animals. How do you go from bear parts to a funeral director? How, how do we get this? And they're in Arabic. So I've, always, I've often puzzled over this, but then I don't know how long ago it was. I was reading Job, and I was reading Job 29. And at the end of Job 29, Job was reminiscing about his past, right? Before the, his suffering, he said, I was, uh, I, was, uh, I, was, I was in good standing. I had everything going for me. At the end of chapter 29, Job says, I chose a way for them and sat as chief and dwelt as a king among the troops as one who comforted the mourners. Mm-hmm. And I, I just immediately, I was like, oh, chief and mourner. He sat as chief, as one who comforted the mourners. That's Al-Qaeda, chief mourner. Oh. Now, would that be associated with Job? Here's how I think it is. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can't say that Job is not telling me this. This is Dan's imagination. I could be wrong. But if nothing else, Al-Qaeda reminds me of the story of Job. And I would use that star to tell Job's story. Uh, and it remind, every time I look at it, every time I think about it, I think of Job. Now, I think there's a little bit of a pun involved. Because how did ancient people, Wayne, before there was photocopies and writing, how did ancient people tell stories? They used the stars as a mnemonic device. Yes. As a mnemonic device. And so here's my point. So one of the things that God says to Job in verse thirty in chapter thirty-eight, uh, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the constellation of Maseroth in its season, and guide the bear with her satellites? Hmm. Now, there's the connection: chief mourner and the bear. It, it makes perfect sense to me how you'd have a chief mourner in a constellation that is primarily known as, as Ursa Major, the, the Great Bear. So if you know the motion of the Big Dipper and Ursa Major, it goes round and round the pole star. If you're the northern hemisphere, you can see it year-round. Mm -hmm. It goes around and around the pole star. And as it's going around the pole star, guess what? Al-Qaeda, the chief mourner, is following the bear. He's not guiding the bear. Oh. He's, he's following it. So maybe there's an ancient pun. Ah, look, the chief mourner, <laughs> he's not leading the bear. He can't. He's following the bear. And I, I can't help but wonder if maybe the ancient people didn't use that as some kind of mnemonic device and that what you see in al is an ancient reminder of the book of Job. I don't know. But that's my story. <laughs> that, may, may, that may not make it into the podcast. I don't know. <laughs> but... 
to say it, to, to, for whatever for whatever it's worth, I'm just saying that that reminds me of Job. I'm not saying that that is what that star actually means in terms of what God intended it to mean, because the names that we have are not necessarily the names that God gave these stars. These are the names that have been in our records since Ptolemy. So I'm not saying that's what the star name means, but I'm just saying that that's what it reminds me of, that the chief mourner cannot, in fact, lead the bear. He has to follow. And I think that that may be something of what uh, what has happened here. Job was glorious, and then he was humbled. And of course, he doesn't know the ordinances of the heavens. Of course, he can't loose the chains of the Pleiades or bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion. Um, and so anyway, that's, uh, and, and that's what happens when we contemplate nature. You know, when I drove out to Utah this, uh, this past couple of weeks, I was, I'm terrified of heights and I had to go up into seven, 8,000 feet elevation through the Rockies and, um, up into the mountains as I got up into Colorado at 75, 8,000 feet. I was terrified. Some, some of these roads and how high up I was and how large and huge and vast these mountains were. It was beautiful, but it was also terrifying. And it's just humbling when you really, really take into uh, consideration, when you uh, really take into consideration uh, the majesty of, of God and creation. It truly is a humbling and frightening and frightening thing, which I think uh, the book of Job um, reminds us that uh, a meditation on God and creation should humble us. Yeah, well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about Job's friends, Dan. Yes, yes. So I looked into their names and what it says about them, and we don't know very much about them. Yeah, there's not a lot of background there. But mm-hmm. we, uh, like Eliphaz is one of them. It says Eliphaz the Temanite. Uh, turns out that's very related to the book of Genesis because if you go back and trace from Genesis 36, um the descendants of Esau, um, the descendants of Esau came to be called Edomites. And you have something happening in the book of Genesis that's, you can see how it relates even to other things in the Old Testament. You, you will start with a certain person and that individual, like Uz was one, right? Uz, nephew of Abraham, First, it's a person. Then there's a place that ends up being called by this man's name, the the land of us. So then it becomes a whole um, family group and eventually a whole people group that came from one man. And there's multiple examples of this you can follow from Genesis into other things in the Old Testament. Well, okay. so if you follow the names with Esau, Esau had Esau's firstborn son uh, was a man named Eliphaz. Now, hmm. that, that was not the same Eliphaz as in Job because right. Uh, right. it says that Job's friend was a Temanite. Well, there was a man named Teman who was also one of the descendants of Esau, another generation or two. Um, after Esau, so Eliphaz was one of this group of people that were the descendants of Esau. So you could say Eliphaz, Job's friend, was an Edomite. So was he? But was he a Temanite or an Edomite? 
Which one is it? Temanite is like a family name. Okay. And the Edomite is a general uh, name for a bigger people group. Okay, so he was a Temanite within the Edomites. Yes. That's dynamite. <laughs> Sorry. That's terrible. Well, <laughs> so anyway, I think... <laughs> it's fascinating to trace some of the names right, and place right. names. The the people, the individual names become place names. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you can trace that out sometimes. And I can't, I can't do that for Bildad or Zophar. I do have the, some background on uh, Bildad, which okay. you might you might find entertaining. Um, about once a month, Lord Jesus bless my pastor. Uh, pastor Lou tells a joke from the pulpit. And uh, he's not a, he's not a, he has dad jokes, but he doesn't tell them much from the pulpit, but he has this one and he tells it all the time. At least once a month I hear it. But every time I hear it, it's funny because he tells it like he's never told it before. <laughs> I mean, I, I know he's told it before, but every time he tells it, it's funny. He goes, uh, so uh, what's the shortest man in the Bible? And people might say, <laughs> oh, Zacchaeus or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've told you this. <laughs> and yes. uh, he says, no, 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 it's not Zacchaeus. It's Bildad, the shoe height. The shoe height. <laughs> okay. I was like, okay, Pastor. <laughs> but every time he tells it, it's funny. You're like, yeah, Bildad, the shoe height. But you're right, uh, biblically. <laughs> it's not the same kind of shoe that we think. Uh, but anyway, uh, there's not much on Bildad, the shoe height, or Zophar, the Namathite, or the... Is that Namathite? Namathite, I think it is. Namathite. Namathite. I, I, I was I, I'm guessing, but yeah, but there, uh, uh, there's not, uh, um, there's not a whole lot uh, that we can use to trace these. Right, brands. and then there's the latter one. Uh, there was the first three, and then there was a fourth one, the uh, Elihu or Elihu. Elihu. Uh, it says he was a Buzite. Well, that's that's another name you can look into. Is there was a man named Buzz, who was the brother of Uz. I mentioned this. Mm-hmm. Nephews of Abraham. You can go to Genesis 23. And so Elihu, or Elihu, he was probably one of these uh, descendants of Abraham as well. A Buzzite. Yeah, a Buzzite. Mm-hmm. Who we might today think is a disciple of Buzz Aldrin. If Buzz, Buzz Aldrin has disciples, I don't think. But would be funny if <laughs> if Buzz Aldrin was a was was a genealogically could be traced back to the Buzzites. Buzz the Buzzite. Yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, we're 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 really off on the bad dad jokes right now. Sorry, everybody. We're we're kind of jumping around we here. We are but, jumping uh, around. Yes. Yes. The what else? Let's see. The. Uh, but I think Job's friends were in the area, and Edom is south of Israel, mm-hmm. and uh, that's probably the area where Job lived somewhere. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a possibility. Now, Wayne, uh, you hear some scholars, and it's mostly uh, of the liberal kind that will say, "Well, Job didn't. Doesn't matter if Job was historical or not. It could just be a parable." Like uh, the parable of uh, the sower or the parable of the wicked vine dressers or the parable of the, you know, seeds or whatever the case may be, that Job is just a gigantic allegory or parable. It didn't really happen and it doesn't really matter that it didn't happen. But Wayne, we have uh, 
Why is it likely that uh, Job and the events thereof were actually probably historically true? What in the Bible well, gives us those? those yeah, there's good reasons to say hey, this is a real person. Yes, what First are those? Of, for one thing, in Ezekiel 14, it mentions uh, Job along with Noah and Daniel. Mm-hmm. And then um, Job is also mentioned in the New Testament in the book of James. James 5.11. Yes. So that that is one thing. And then... I think all the references to these other people groups and names, like we were talking about Eliphaz and Elihu, so the the kind of historical connection to Genesis is connecting this to other real people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, you don't postulate a fictional person in the middle of a historical thing with all sorts of historical connections with real people. Right, and... It's fascinating too because, um, well, some some critics will say, well, how could, who wrote this, right? I mean, who could have possibly was somebody there taking a recording? But I think the most, I think Dr. Morris outlines this, the most logical explanation is that Job wrote it down as Job remembered it, um, probably. Yes, and I... then and then Moses, Moses, in however Moses put it together uh moses wrote it but i think he was writing it from a source if we're going to credit moses with uh uh yeah i think there had to be something put in writing very early very in ancient times Mm -hmm. that was passed down now it it's apparently a uh jewish tradition that moses wrote it but mm-hmm. uh i don't think we know and i don't think it really had to be moses no it didn't but uh and i also think um you know when job was in the middle of his suffering he didn't know the part about satan you know i was thinking about this dan of course if not. you were if you were going through the suffering that job had with his these scabs and his his skin turning black and it was really an awful thing what he went through and uh it wouldn't be of much help to know that satan had sort of targeted you yeah i mean what would that what <laughs> that what would what do you do with that information you that know? wouldn't be an encouragement you know <laughs> oh great yes the devil is attacking me fantastic <laughs> so you know it it was better to Get his focus on God and think about God. Anyway, um, Satan had a role in this, and that doesn't mean that all human suffering is because Satan is involved, but it's because of Job's extraordinary righteousness as a person, his extraordinary character, and and he came up and God mentioned Job to Satan. Have you seen my servant Job? There's nobody like him. Mm. And then Satan sort of proposes a kind of a test. Well, let's put it to the test. Let's see if he will deny you and curse you to your to your face. And Satan sort of thinks he can make Job curse God or something. And and there's you know, so two there's two rounds with between Satan and God. Where uh, so first in the first step, the Satan doesn't do anything to affect Job's health. He just but Job loses his family, his children. He doesn't lose his wife apparently, but he loses his children and all all these things that he owns. 
And then the second part of it was Satan said, well, yeah, but touch him and his person. Touch his health, and he then he will curse you. And so that was the second test. So it was like Job was being put to the test as a kind of a dare from Satan. Yeah, and I wonder, I think Dr. Morris anticipated this, but God's question was anticipating what, I mean, we don't have it in the text, but you can think about this, it makes sense, that God already knew what Satan had come to desire to do. Um, And so God's question preempts Satan, as if to say to Satan, I already know why you're here. I already know what you're going to do. So he just, he spits it out. Maybe he's preempting what Satan had come to do. And, um, but this is consistent because when you get into the New Testament, Wayne, that uh, God seems to allow his people to be tested by the enemy, but the enemy has to acquire permission. Remember Jesus coming to Peter. Satan has good, good point. Yeah. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may fail not. And then look at Jesus himself in Matthew chapter four. He is tempted three times by Satan. And then there's another New Testament apostle who was buffeted by a messenger of Satan. That was the Apostle Paul. But Paul gives a reason. Paul is told why he has that messenger of Satan. Because of the magnitude of the message entrusted to me. In other words, God, Jesus used Satan to humble Paul because of the revelations that God had given Paul so that Paul would not be puffed up in his fleshy mind. That's Paul's explanation. I know why I got this. I've prayed that the Lord take it from me We don't know what the messenger of Satan is, if it was a literal demon that attacked him or if it was some health issue or something. But Paul's, whatever it was, Paul, the ultimate thing Paul called it was a angolas, a messenger of Satan. And so, like you said, Wayne, it's it's kind of almost the opposite in, in Christianity. You don't, certainly your sin will get you in trouble. I mean, if you live a sinful lifestyle, eventually it's going to catch up with you. But let's be honest, there are a lot of ruthless and sinful human beings who are unrepentant and don't believe in God who are living luxurious, peaceful, happy lives, right? And then there are people who are blessed of Jesus, who are suffering and are persecuted or in jails or in prison or are facing torture and execution. Um, Should we believe that they did something sinful to deserve the suffering that they're going through? No, of course not. So what we see in scripture is anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will find persecution and suffering. I mean, it's whether it's your own flesh or other people, um, but if you are proclaiming God's word in any way, shape, or form with deliberate intent, uh, you have, uh, you have gar- garnished the attention of, of uh, the principalities and powers in heavenly places, as Ephesians 6 says. And so it's perfectly reasonable, it's perfectly consistent anyway, that, that God would use the adversary to uh, bring about Uh, His glory through Job. 